It is my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 28th of March, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. The town of Greenwich was founded on July 18th, 1640. Since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities, a special place that we call home. Whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay or you're just passing through, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history. And for that, we congratulate you. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of the Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. we got a great show for you today. So without further delay, why don't we get started? Coming up on today's show. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, how many of you knew that Andrew Carnegie lived in Greenwich? When in town, he'd stay at the mid-country estate known as Alta Crest, also called Electric Hill. I'll share details about Carnegie's time in Greenwich and about the house he stayed in on North Street, reputed to be the first fully electrified home in the nation, possibly the world. On Women's History Month, which soon concludes, on February 28, 1837, the selectmen of the town of Greenwich gave permission for the teachers of the North Greenwich Congregational Church Sabbath School to educate a woman named Emmeline Foster. I'll share details. On Greenwich Life as it is and was, columnist Lucian B. Edwards published a piece a century ago about the growth of Riverside and the popularity of the Riverside Yacht Club. As we continue to mark the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, I'll share news of burglaries, arrests, and crimes committed and recorded throughout Greenwich's history. It was also a century ago that the first automobile show was held in the Armory Building on Mason Street. A wedding was held uniting the Dewing and Louder families. Located at 27 Havemeyer Place, I'll share news of the opening of the first modern high school building in 1907. In 1830, Dr. Marcus Palmer of Greenwich became the first missionary from the town, going forth to the Cherokees under the auspices of the American Board of Commissioners of Foreign Missions. You will also hear about a unique divorce decree in Greenwich dating from 1867. Well, my friends, there's lots to see, lots to do, and to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich. Thanks to the Greenwich Historical Society, you've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We'll have all this and lots more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages.
Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction, to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Well, the Gilded Age was a fascinating time, not just in American history, but in Greenwich, Connecticut's history. And I wanted to share with you something that I have to admit I didn't know until rather recently, uh, but um, but now I do. <laughs> I get to share it with you. And it was the fact that um, Andrew Carnegie at one time lived here in the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, my source on this is a column that was written by uh, Lucian Edwards in the Greenwich News and Graphic, and it is dated, almost, well, actually almost a century ago, April 13, 1923. The story goes as follows. It was 25 years ago that Andrew Carnegie and wife came to Greenwich to spend the summer. 
Conditions were quite different in Greenwich then from what they are at the present time, in every way. On Greenwich Avenue from Lewis Street to Railroad Avenue, there were no stores at the time. The larger part of Greenwich Avenue was not even had not been developed. It was mostly farmlands, though there were a number of cottages, and Greenwich Avenue was considered a desirable street for residents. But the owners of the farmlands, who had held them for years, were adverse to selling building lots, and so the land was about in the same shape it had been for nearly a century, and it was not until after the Havemeyer schoolhouse was erected that most of Greenwich Avenue began to change in the new homes and store buildings that were built. It was just after the conclusion of the Spanish-American War that the quote-unquote Iron Master, and I think that refers to Andrew Carnegie, and his family came to Greenwich for the season. It was their first coming to Greenwich to live for a time. Most of the Greenwich boys who had been in the war had returned to their homes here. Some of them were seriously ill, and all of them looked thin due to the poor food furnished the soldiers, over which there was a great deal of newspaper comment and public censure at the time. But everybody was rejoicing because there was the war was over, and prediction was made that the United States would never again be engaged in war. This assertion was frequently heard in public places in Greenwich, and if the statement had been made that in less than 25 years the United States would be taking part in the most horrible war in the history of the world, it would have been thought impossible. The coming of the Carnegie family to Greenwich did not attract as much attention as it would otherwise have done, but for conditions existing on account of the Spanish-American War. Still, Whenever this business genius, philanthropist, and public-spirited citizen of the United States was seen on any Greenwich street, he was looked upon with feelings of veneration by almost all the persons who saw him. He had the reputation of accomplishing the greatest amount of big business in the smallest space of time of any of the men of large financial interests who had their fine summer houses or homes in Greenwich, and there were several of them living here then. His secretary came to Greenwich every day when Mr. Converse was at home and would be closeted with him for a couple of hours, and the business of great importance that was dashed off was marvelous, those who knew about it said. The Carnegie family occupied E.H. Johnson's house on what was then called Electric Hill on Upper North Street. Mr. Johnson, then a young man, came to Greenwich with his family and occupied Nelson B. Meade's cottage on the Field Point Road. He purchased the Hanford Lockwood place and at once made some improvements that astonished everyone who saw them. Mr. Johnson was connected with the General Electric Company, and there was a wonderful display of what could be done in electric lighting on the premises. By touching an electric button at the entrance of the gate, as well as elsewhere on the property, the entire house, grounds, and other buildings were illuminated, and the lighted place could be seen for miles in all directions, and for that reason the section was called Electric Hill. And Electric Hill was certainly an appropriate name for the locality. The automobiles were coming into use at that time, but only wealthy persons owned them. Occasionally, William Rockefeller would come to Greenwich from Tarrytown in a Winton car. 
a crude affair when compared to the automobiles of the present day. To visit his farm on Lake Avenue, and his automobile was an eyesore of all those eyes who saw it as being a wonderful car. <laughs> Mr. Carnegie had a large coupe-style automobile that conveyed him f forth and back from the railroad station when he went out of town. Frequently, however, he would walk a greater part of the distance, and often, when he was not in the car, the chauffeur would stop and take in any working men who he saw going in the direction he was traveling, and this was done at Mr. Carnegie's direction. It made no difference whether they were covered with dirt, they were invited to ride just the same, and Mr. Carnegie would sometimes stop and talk with them. He made friends with all of the Scotchmen who he met here, and with the Thompson brothers, he was quite intimate. You know, Electric Hill must have been an extraordinary place. Now, one of the things that I have done is that I have posted a picture of that estate. It was known as Altacrest. Um, on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons .com posting or show uh, posting for um, for today, and um, it's uh, it's an extraordinarily beautiful uh, house. Unfortunately, it um, was demolished some years ago. I knew about this place uh, rather um, obscurely, and um, with the help of Christopher Shields over at the Greenwich Historical Society, he is the archivist over there. I was able to uh, find uh, some materials. Uh, that um, gave quite a bit of um, information about uh, about Altacrest, also known as Electric Hill. For those of you that are wondering where it was, apparently it was uh, in the area of what we know today as the Greenwich Country Club, which is located off of um, Dublin Road. I have a few pieces that I'd like to, um, uh, to share with you. Uh, the first one is titled A Brilliant Electric Affair. Electric Hill Illuminated Birthday and Lawn Party at Mr. E.H. Johnson's. Now, remember that uh, Mr. Johnson was affiliated with the, uh, the formation of General Electric. GE, as, uh, of course, many of us would, uh, would know it today. Um, there were some people that thought that, um, that Electric Hill was the first fully electrified home in the United States, possibly the world. Um, I've been told that that is not quite the case. The first um, fully electrified house in, um, in the country, and again, possibly the world, was actually J.P. Morgan's. Uh, in um, uh, in Manhattan, in New York City, um, he was very much involved with um, uh, Thomas Edison and the formation of uh, General Electric. So um, uh, I guess it's only logical that he would have the um, the first uh, electric home in um, in the country, if not the world. Anyway, let me read this to you. It's quite something. Electric Hill was a blaze of light last Saturday evening, and again, this is oh, this is from the Greenwich um, Greenwich Graphic uh, on July twenty first, eighteen eighty eight. The house and grounds of Mister E. H. Johnson's were brilliantly illuminated with electric lights. People on the Sound, steamers and vessels passing Greenwich, wondered what the light was off on the hill. In the house, the effect was wonderful. All the colors of the rainbow were displayed, and from the cupola up to the cellar, it was a blaze of electricity. It was the birthday of the little daughter of Mr. Johnson, and this was a birthday and lawn party given by her. The entertainment was an informal one, but Mr. and Mrs. Johnson know thoroughly how to entertain, and it is needless to say that the many friends present were very hospitably received. 
There were games and other amusements provided, lawn tennis, croquet, and the bowling alley being chiefly indulged in. At nine o'clock, refreshments were served and dancing followed. Now, I have another piece uh, that I'd like to share, one of, um, uh, uh, well, I have three altogether. Um, this one is titled um, Wintertime of, uh, on Electric Hill, and uh, this was published um, on March 16, 1889 in the Greenwich Graphic. Um, and, um, and it goes as follows. Uh, the subheadline is, um, there is nothing like Mr. E.H. Johnson's place in the world. Mr. Johnson's electric carriage light, uh, which he uses while traveling, are dark streets. I guess they even had uh, uh, electric lights on their vehicles back in those days, but uh, who knows? Anyway, there's a dialogue here, and it says, Hello, Central. Hello. Please give us Mr. E.H. Johnson's place on Electric Hill. Hello. Is that you, Mr. Patterson? Yes. Will you be there tonight? Yes, was his response. Come up here. I want to see you. All right. Expect us about eight this evening. And then the quote ends. Mr. Patterson, Patterson is the able manager of Mr. Johnson's wonderful electric plant. Apparently, Electric Hill uh, had its own electric plant. Well, I, I guess that would be necessary. And as he expresses it, quote, there is nothing it like it in this country or any other country, unquote. Mr. Pattison must have known about the time we reached the gate on that evening, for as the graphic representative was appearing with a friend, in an instant there was a flash, and all the lamps leading up to the house were lighted. We found him in the room where all the machinery is situated, and were warmly welcomed by him. He briefly explained all the various machinery there and told us how pretty much everything was done by electricity. He touched a button here and the whole house was lighted. He pressed another button and all was in darkness. Electricity did his bidding for lighting, heating, running pumps, making alarms go, turning fanning machines, used in summer, an indicator to tell the state of the weather playing uh, an organette, turning corn grinders and a stone crusher, and for doing all sorts of labor. He explained how hot air was forced by the electric machinery into the house and Mr. A.B. Johnson's new residence, and showed us how hot water was forced into the greenhouses, where a perfectly even temperature was kept. Quote, has Mr. Johnson been putting up any new machinery this winter, we asked? Unquote. Quote, yes, he is having something done here all the time, unquote. Look at this little battery, he, quote, he said. Now, when Mr. Johnson wants to go about the dark streets here, we don't need any lights. This is a storage battery. He puts this under the seat of his carriage. To it is attached this little reflector, which resembles a dark or flash lantern that watchmen carry. Inside of this is an arch light of 16 candle power. This is placed in front of the dashboard, or at the side, or anywhere as he lights, and a wire connects it with the battery. He gets into his carriage, touches a button, and he has a brilliant light which enables him to see 30 feet or more ahead of him. Are these in general use, we asked. No, was the reply. Quote, I think this is the only one, and Mr. Johnson just had it made for himself. You can see, however, what possibilities are in it if he wanted to push it. 
it might do for a number of things, could be used as headlights for locomotives and for such purposes, unquote. At the invitation of Mr. A.B. Johnson, we inspected his quaint and cozy residence recently erected. It is one of the prettiest houses in Greenwich and is full of surprises, not only in what is done here by electricity, but by the oddity of its interior. It is suggestive of a beautiful home. As we were leaving for the night, Mr. Patterson said, quote, The people of the borough, that would be Greenwich, made a great mistake when they declined Mr. Johnson's splendid offer to light the borough with electricity. I don't think they realized what they did or the great advantage it would have had been for, uh, to them, unquote. And then my final story that I would like to, uh, to share with you about Electric Hill is this one. This one comes from the New York Times. Um, and it is dated, let's see, oh, September 29th, 1916. Zabriskie Estate sold, and that would be um, uh, Altacrest, Electric Hill, and Hetty Green's daughter buys property at Greenwich. Now, um, in one of my previous uh, podcasts um, we, uh, this month, we had uh, hosted, or, or featured, rather, a, a story about... Uh, about Hetty Green um, and uh, Sylvia Wilkes, um, the um, Greenwich, well, I mean, she was a philanthropist who had properties in, um, in Greenwich. Uh, you can read about this. It's called Spotlight on uh, Sylvia Wilkes, Greenwich, Heiress, Reckless, and Philanthropist. Um, it is uh, a piece by Leslie Albamonte um, of the Greenwich Historical Society, and it is in the History from Home section at GreenwichHistory.org. If you go to the Library and Archives, uh, menu at the uh, top of the page. Just scroll down to History from Home and look for the um, uh, for the piece by um, Leslie Albamonte called, again, Spotlight on Sylvia Wilkes, Greenwich Heiress, Recluse, and Philanthropist. You'll even see a picture of her there. Um, it's quite entertaining, to um, to say the least. By the way, one of the properties that, um, that she owned in uh, Greenwich um, was... Um, 48 Maple Avenue, that is the Solomon Mead House, the stone Italianate uh, building uh, and home mansion at the um, uh, off of uh, Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church. And as you know, we do feature a um, an advertisement for Coffee for Good. So if you have a chance, you can even go over to um, Coffee for Good and um, experience for yourself what it must have been like to be inside a home that was owned by Sylvia Wilkes. Really quite something. Wow. All right. Anyway, back to um, Electric Hill. And, um, and this story uh, is Hetty Green's Daughter Buys Property at Greenwich, and it's a special to the New York Times. Uh, dated September 28th, um, 1916, it was published the next day. Altacrest, the estate of Mrs. Alonzo M. Zabriskie, situated on North Street, was sold today to Mrs. A. Sylvia Wilkes, daughter of the late Mrs. Hetty Green. The purchase price is not made public, but it is understood that the property was held at about $200,000. Mrs. Wilkes will take possession in the early fall. The property, comprising about 15 acres of land, together with a large stone-tiled roofed mansion, garage, and other buildings, commands an extensive view of Long Island Sound and the surrounding country. It adjoins the golf course of the Greenwich Country Club and is considered to be one of the choicest show places in this section. 
E.H. Johnson, who was connected with the General Electric Light Company, purchased the property from the Reynolds estate several years ago and installed an unusual lighting system. One only had to reach to a button to illuminate the entire estate. From this, the estate acquired the name of Electric Hill. Mr. Johnson sold the property to the late Alfred H. Peets, and later it was bought by Charles Hirschhorn of New York, who in turn sold it to the late Mr. Zabriskie. And that, my friends, is the story behind Altacrest, also known as Electric Hill. best-kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own, a popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, on Greenwich Life as it is and was, Lucian Edwards relates to his readers um, back on March 23rd, 1923, so literally about um, a century ago, the growth of Riverside as a residential section of Greenwich and Riverside Yacht Club's popularity. So sit back and follow along. And the story goes as follows. 
Before the days when golf playing became popular in Greenwich, the organization of the Fairfield County Golf Club, the location of the golf course on North Street, and automobiles had been perfected and come into use 35-odd years ago. Yachting was the popular pleasure, sport, or pastime with those who could afford it. Yachting was an expensive form of amusement, for a good yacht cost a lot of money. But those who were not possessed of sufficient means to own a yacht could enjoy a pleasure of seeing them sail and sailing with their owners if they were so inclined. The Riverside Yacht Club was the center of attraction at that time in the summer season for many Greenwich residents, as well as for a good many persons living out of town, not only on regatta days, but also other days and evenings of the week. There was a restaurant connected with the club and a first-class chef employed, and a fine meal could always be obtained at the Riverside Yacht Club, which gave the popular pleasure resort added attraction. The Riverside Yacht Club was one of the first yacht clubs formed and located on the north shore of Long Island Sound, the Larchmont Yacht Club antedating it by some years. About this time each year, preparations were being made in the way of repairs and improvement for opening of the Yacht Club for the season. Riverside was one of the select residential sections of the town of Greenwich, and land there was about the first to be placed on sale for fine residences, or as a suburban section of New York City. This was due largely to the activity of Jeremiah W. Atwater, a real estate agent whose home was in Riverside, but whose office was in New York City. Owners of land in most parts of the town of Greenwich opposed selling any of their real estate to New Yorkers. Hmm. They said they didn't want any New Yorkers to come to Greenwich to live, or words to that effect. But in Riverside, conditions were different, due largely to Mr. Atwater's influence. He brought many New Yorkers to Riverside to look at the beautiful residential sites and induced them to buy and build attractive homes. And after a few years, he had gathered together quite a colony of prominent and wealthy New York families. Luke A. Lockwood, a well-known New York lawyer, was prominently identified with the town of Greenwich. His family had lived in Riverside for years. His prominence as a prominence as a member of the Acacia Lodge AF and AM gave him wide reputation throughout the state, for it was due largely to Acacia Lodge and Mr. Lockwood's influence that the beautiful Masonic home on Wallingford was founded. And indeed, if I could cut in here, the um, Acacia Lodge refers to the uh, the Freemasons, uh, you know, here in Greenwich and elsewhere. The organization in support of St. Paul's Chapel and the attractive church building, an object of interest in that section, were largely the result of Mr. Lockwood's interest in this establishment of an Episcopalian church in that part of town. The Oskarshin family, prominent in the sugar industry at that time, came to Riverside to live, also C.T. Pierce and several Tyson families and others. The formation of the Riverside Yacht Club was largely the work of the Tyson family, through whose influence it became so popular and well-known. The regattas of the club were among the important yachting events on the Sound, several taking place during the season, the vicinity of the Yacht Club being a lively place in those days. 
All the Greenwich yachtsmen belonged to the Riverside Yacht Club, for the Indian Harbor Yacht Club had not been organized at the time, and the Riverside Yacht Club was prosperous socially, numerically, and financially. Every member of the club did not own a yacht, but members were admitted largely on their social standing, so the club could be called a very select one. The Riverside Yacht Club continued for years about the same way. Then the members began to drop out for one reason or another. Automobiling became popular and took the place of yachting, and so a few years ago there were not enough members left to maintain the Riverside Yacht Club, and the organization was given up. There were other attractions in Riverside besides the Riverside Yacht Club, to make that section very desirable for high-class residences, and it still remains much of that rural quiet that is so much desired by many New Yorkers in their summer homes. There are beautiful drives and magnificent views and sea breezes, features that appeal to many homeseekers, and the Waldron House was, has afforded hotel accommodations for years. But after all, the Riverside Yacht Club had much to do with the building up of Riverside, and it was unfortunate that it could not have been maintained at the present time as it had been in the past. Now, I cut in here also to mention that obviously the Riverside Yacht Club still exists uh, today in the early years of the 21st century, and I'm sure that it will be there for many, many years to come. Well, as we start to close out Women's History Month, I have a rather fascinating piece that I'd like to share with you. It was written by Heather Lodge of the Greenwich Historical Society. Its title is A Request for Education, and the story goes as follows. On February 28, 1837, the selectmen of the town of Greenwich gave permission for the teachers of the North Greenwich Congregational Church Sabbath School to educate a woman named Emmeline or Emmeline Foster. The letter shown below, which is on the website, granting Ms. Foster permission to attend the church's school highlights a brief but important moment in the history of civil rights. Emmeline Foster was a black woman who lived just north of Greenwich in North Castle, New York. She was a member of the North Greenwich Congregational Church and was interested in attending their Sabbath school. However, she could not do so without the explicit permission of the town. This was not solely because of her race. Public schools in Connecticut were integrated, at least on paper. And it was not solely because of her address. Educational opportunities for those living out of state did exist in Connecticut at the time. Rather, it was due to the combination of her race and address that permission had to be sought. The why behind this letter can be found four years before. In 1833, Prudence Crandall opened a boarding school for black girls in Canterbury, Connecticut, much to the chagrin of her neighbors. Her original intention had been to run a boarding school for white children, and her neighbors felt betrayed by the sudden change of direction and worried that the establishment of this school would lead to an influx of black students from other states with less educational opportunities to their town. They asked Ms. Crandall to close her school, and when she refused, her neighbors took her to court. At the time, the people of Connecticut took pride in their integrated schools. 
They saw it as an expression of their superior abolitionist tendencies. This said, they did not relish the idea of black families moving to Connecticut en masse to receive this education, both for the social and financial reasons. Thus, on May 24, 1833, the Connecticut legislature passed a quote-unquote black law, which prohibited schools from teaching African-American students from outside the state without the town's explicit permission. The town of Canterbury was quick to refuse Miss Crandall's school, but she taught regardless. This led to her arrest. Crandall's arrest galvanized sections of the abolitionist movement who fundraised to help, help, to help fight her case. In court, the defense argued that Miss Crandall's arrest should be repealed as the law that made it possible was fundamentally unconstitutional. They argued that free black people were considered citizens in other states, and this status and the rights that it gave should not be lost when they entered Connecticut. Crandall's lawyer, William W. Ellsworth, stated, quote, A distinction founded in color in fundamental rights is novel, inconvenient, and impracticable. Hitherto, we have seen no such distinction. These, pu these pupils are human beings born in these states and owe the same obligation to the state and the state's government as white citizens. Unquote. The opposition argued that even though the Constitution did indeed say that, quote, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states, unquote, this did not matter, as free black people were not citizens. The Connecticut justice system, caught between the two sides and unwilling to take either, found an excuse to dismiss the case entirely, leaving the argument uns unresolved. Not long after, Crandall's school was attacked. She was forced to close both the school and leave state for her safety and the safety of her students. This is how it came to be that in 1837, Emmeline Foster and the teachers who wished to help her had to petition the Board of Selectmen of Greenwich for permission for her to attend their school. Being a black woman who lived out of state, the laws brought into being during the Crandall case applied directly to her. Thankfully for Foster, the town of Greenwich approved the request and allowed her to attend the church's school. Interestingly, one year later, this permission would have been unnecessary. In 1838, the quote-unquote black code regarding regulating school enrollment for out-of-state black students was removed from the books. The laws behind this letter concerning Emmeline Foster only existed for five years, but their impact was significant. The questions of citizenship and the right to an education argued over in Crandall versus the State of Connecticut would be referenced time and time again in court. The influence of this case can be traced most significantly to decisions such as Dred Scott v. Sanford in 1857, which declared that free black people were not citizens, later overruled by the creation of the 13th and 14th Amendments, and Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, which ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional. There was also the personal toll of these laws. Ms. Foster, Ms. Crandall's students, and so many like them, must have felt their futures in the balance with these rulings. 
While here in Greenwich, Emmeline Foster was granted her right to an education. There were doubtless many others who were denied. Lives were forever changed by this law and the selectmen who enforced it. We do not know what happened to Emmeline Foster after this letter was written. No doubt she happily received her education, but her life beyond this moment and what she did with that education remains a mystery. Believe it or not, automobile shows have been held in Greenwich, Connecticut for a century. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to Greenwich Concours d'Elegance. It's going to be held June 3rd through 4th at Roger Sherman Baldwin Park here in Greenwich, Connecticut. And you can learn more and buy tickets at GreenwichConcours.com. That's spelled G-R-E-E-N-W-I-C-H-C-O-N-C-O-U-R-S.com. Well, lo and behold, it is true that literally 100 years ago, in March of 1923, Greenwich, Connecticut was the scene of its first automobile show. Um, and I'd like to share this with you. The publicity on this was uh, mentioned to the public uh, in the Greenwich News and Graphic initially on March 16, 1923. And the story goes as follows. That the initial automobile show conducted at the in the State Armory this week by the Greenwich Automobile Dealers under the auspices of Battery F 192nd Artillery has proven to be a most successful venture as shown by the way in which the show has been patronized by local and out-of-town people and the number of automobiles that have been sold by the large number of dealers who have had cars entered. W.H. Partian of Hartford and James J. Callahan of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, who have had wide experiences in managing similar shows in Yonkers, White Plains, and other places, are the directors of the local show, which reflects much credit upon them. The drill shed of the State Armory presents a most attractive appearance, being decorated with gold and white bunting and greens festooned over the rafters. Each electric light bulb is covered with the same colors, giving a real ballroom effect. Large printed cards in colors giving the names of the machines suspended over each make of car. There is a splendid array of automobiles of the Touring Coupe sedan and limousine type, including the majority of the most popular cars now in use. Thomas S. Willits, chairman of the show committee, opened the show on Tuesday evening at 8 o'clock by introducing first selectman Oscar D. Tuthill, who, he said, was Greenwich's most popular citizen. Selectman Tuthill briefly explained that an automobile show of this kind should become an annual event. He showed how it brought Greenwich before the eyes of the public and should be a credit to any town and city. He then declared the show officially opened, after which horns on every car in the drill shed sounded. In spite of the heavy rainstorm, there was a large attendance and five cars were sold on the first night. The first automobile to be sold was by the Grove Motor Sales Company, which disposed of a Chevrolet Roadster with disc wheels to Clarence Mead of 140 Millbank Avenue. The sale was made by Harvey Grove, a member of the company. 
During the evening, selections were played by Kearney's Orchestra of Stamford, and solos were sung by Miss Norma Leyland and Miss Vera Coburn. Miss Leyland, a soprano, who has been delighting stage audiences at the Forest Lodge, North Stamford, as well as giving recitals at private homes, was suffering from a cold, but her voice, which is of unusual rich quality, but her voice, which is of, I'm sorry, unusual rich quality, they repeated it twice in the article, particularly in the higher register, was nevertheless clear, and she fully demonstrated her ability as an artist. She sang, Love Sends a Little Gift of Roses, Sunrise in You, and When Love is Young. Miss Coburn's voice is one of the great power and wide range, and she filled the spacious armory with apparent ease. Her tones are most pleasing, and she seems to catch the true meaning of the composer in each of her songs. She has appeared in Three Showers, The Wildcat, a Spanish opera, So Long, so Long Letty, and You're in Love. She has sung in every state in the Union, with the exception of Arizona, and entertained overseas in various countries during the World War, after the armistice was signed. Her songs on the opening night included It's a Wonderful World After All and I Passed By Your Window. (laughs) Tuesday evening she sang Out Where the Blue Begins, a Jack Mills publication, Love Me Sweetheart, and Baby Lamb from the Three Showers. Hmm. Among the numerous exhibits at the show, the one just inside the lobby, pressed air bottle, quote-unquote, an interesting device for which C. Smith in general is general agent for Southern Connecticut. It kills fires, raises cars, inflates tires, etc. A quart of any liquid can be chilled and made sparkling by pressed air for a fraction of a cent. The G and F Exide battery of 264 Greenwich Avenue, have an interesting display of batteries, exhibiting the lightest batteries for the ordinary car, as well as heavier ones used in motor trucks, etc. A demonstration of what this type of battery can do was given on Wednesday evening and other nights following, with a radio outfit. The various cars occupy 44 spaces on the floor, dealers from Portchester and Stamford, as well as Greenwich being entered in the show. The Lafayette automobile has been added to the list of cars published last week. There are numerous auto accessory and battery concerns, which also have exhibits. These include Frank Pennyover automobile ex- uh, auto accessories, American Cardox Company, the Spillen Fluid Battery Company of Scarsdale, Weldo Patch Company, New York. Among the dealers and cars in the show are Mercer Motor Sales Company, Trenton, New Jersey, Mercer Cars, Empire Motor Sales Company, Cleveland, Peerless and Fiat, Moon Fairfield Company, Moon Cars, Dutty W. Flint Lincoln Car, W.J. Weber, Jewett and Page Cars, Grove Motor Sales Company, Chevrolet, Daniels & Haynes, Hayden Auto Company, Ruse New England Motor Sales Company, Marmons & Buicks, Long Motor Company, Bay State Car, 
Franklin Motor Company, Franklin. Robert Bridge, Maxwell. Tim Levins, Durant and Stars. Wills St. Clair Agency, Wills St. Clair and Automobiles. David Perkins, Rickenbackers, John Anderson Mitchell, Stratton Bliss Company, Dodge Tyson Motor Sales Company, Packard and Hupmobile. The show has been held every afternoon and evening this week. will come to an end tomorrow evening. The committee representing the dealers in the three towns consists of Thomas S. Willits, John H. Tyson Greenwich, George Eichenmeyer of Stamford, and Tim Levins of Porchester. And it says also a little later, actually a week later, it um, the, the press announced that the show was a success. And if I may, I'd like to share this with you. It's not very long. Large crowds attended. Many autos were sold. The automobile show, this is on March 23rd, 1923, The automobile show held at the State Armory five nights last week closed on Saturday night. Automobile dealers are well satisfied with the pronounced success of their initial show and the good results obtained. Approximately 20 cars were sold with a number of other prospects for sales, which speaks well not only the dealers themselves, but for Messrs. Partian and Callahan, who directed the show. Large crowds attended the show each night, and much interest was manifested. The music was an added feature. Kearney's orchestra played, and Miss Norma Leyland and Miss Vera Coburn, the former a lyric soprano and the latter a dramatic soprano, sang solos and duets both afternoon and evening during the five days of the show. On Saturday evening, their rendition of That Old Irish Mother of Mine, sung as a duet, was so heartily received that they were called out a second time. Besides the Greenwich dealers, there were a number of Portchester and Stamford who had cars entered. There were touring cars, sports models, sedans, showing the latest ideas in passenger cars and the great achievements of the 1923 models. Thomas S. Willett and John H. Tyson of Greenwich, George Eichmeyer of Stamford, and Tim Levins of Portchester represented the dealers as a committee from the three towns. Spring is in the air at the Greenwich Historical Society Museum store at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob. The shelves are bursting with colorful new arrivals that are perfect for Easter baskets, seasonal home decoration, and hostess gifts, and a whole lot more. Now, if you can't go there in person, well, you can order online and you can have it shipped directly to you. Isn't that a fantastic thing? I certainly think it is. What else do we have here? Oh, yes, all gifts come with free gift wrapping provided by the museum store staff. The uh, store is located, as I said, at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob. That's um, over on the Bush Holly House campus. Uh, the museum store hours are Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday and Sunday, noon to 4 p.m. on those weekend days. Um, oh, you know what? I have something else that I would like to share with you. This is really, really terrific. Now, if you have known me even for 
a few minutes. <laughs> you probably know that one of my big passions in life, and, and it's a necessity, quite frankly, is a cup of coffee. Well, I have really good news. The, uh, the staff over at the museum store have told me that in Toby's Tavern, um, which is located uh, directly next to the museum store, um, you can get free on-site coffee and tea. It's self-service. It is um, first come, first served. Um, and, um, you know, it's a great place to have meetings, to get together with friends. Um, also, you know what? They have free Wi-Fi, which is really, uh, with me in particular, a very, very important thing uh, to have. So please go over and uh, shop at the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store. Have a, a nice free cup of uh, coffee or tea. It's self-service, as I mentioned, free Wi-Fi. Seating is limited, so it is first come, first serve. Now, speaking of the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store, well, it's got more than just Easter gifts, i got to tell you that. Um, they have, um, let's see, they have books, they have um, you know, games and puzzles, they have a kid's corner, bath and beauty products, they have products for him, products for her, jewelry, um, let's see, greeting cards and boxed notes. Um, did I mention books? Yes, I think I, uh, I did. Over in um, the home and garden section, they have some really wonderful um, uh, things that you can uh, purchase for yourself. Um, mugs, let's see, salad bowls, pillows, towels, uh, let's see, napkins, all sorts of, um, of things like that. My friends, uh, the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store is located at 47 Strickland Road in Kosgob on the Bush Holly House campus of the Greenwich Historical Society. Uh, for more information, you could go to GreenwichHistory.org. That includes shopping online. Um, or you could call 203-869-6899. You know, there's always something going on at the Greenwich Historical Society, and um, let me just share with you a few of these things that are coming up. Now, many of you may already know that Sports More Than Just a Game is the new exhibit that has opened. It opened on March 8th, the, um, and it closes on uh, September 3rd. 2023. The Greenwich Historical Society invites you to view our exhibition, Sportsman, Sports More Than Just a Game, a dynamic exhibition on the local history of sporting culture, fandom, and celebrity that explores how Greenwich and surrounding communities broke boundaries, tested their limits, and found common ground through athletic achievement. Um, and um, again, as I said, the, um, uh, the exhibit started on uh, March 8th, and it, oh, it, it ends or concludes on September 3rd, 2023. It is in the Frank Family Foundation Special Exhibitions Gallery. I have been to see the, uh, the exhibit. I strongly recommend it. It's very, very well done, and my congratulations um, to the, the staff over at Greenwich Historical Society for making this happen. Now, on April 5th, 2023, well, Sports More Than Just a Game, Exhibition Spotlight Tours. Now, on the first Wednesday of each month, um, you get to enjoy free admission to the museum galleries and join the Greenwich Historical Society staff for a guided spotlight tour highlighting uh, favorite Greenwich sports stories. There's no registration needed. You just have to walk in. And uh, that is from 1 p.m. to 1.30 p.m. on those Wednesdays. You might want to write this down, although it is at GreenwichHistory.org. Look under um, events and you'll see it there. Uh, but the uh, tour dates are, um, let's see, we have one starting on April 5th, 2023. The other tour dates are May 3rd, 
June 7th, July 5th, August, 20, uh, August 2nd, rather, and spend a, and a special bonus tour on August 30th. Um, that looks like a fun thing to, uh, to go to, and um, I strongly recommend it. And then finally for today, what do we have here? Greenwich Greats sharing the stories of the local legends through their oral histories. April 5th, 2023, join the Greenwich Library Oral History Project in a fascinating exploration of the lives and legacies of some of our local legends. The Oral History Project will highlight the stories of several notable Greenwich athletes through their own words and share more about the ongoing work of the Oral History Project's initiatives. This event will be followed by an opportunity to participate in a complimentary guided tour of the exhibition Sports More Than Just a Game, and that is from 1 to 2 p.m. The date for uh, for this uh, is April 5th, 2023. That is from 11.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., um, let's see, begun in 1973 as a one-year project of the Greenwich Historical Society, the Earl History Project was invited to Greenwich Library in 1974 by then-director Nolan Lushington, who asked the Earl History Project to produce books as the library's contribution to the town for the bicentennial in 1976. Since 1974, the project has been a permanent committee of the Friends of the Greenwich Library, Oral History Project, the staff by volunteers and new members are always welcome. That really sounds great. Now, uh, Greenwich Greats sharing stories of local legends through their oral uh, oral histories, the Greenwich Library Oral History Project. This is on Wednesday, April 5th. The uh, price for a member is $10, um, and for non-members, it's $15. Again, you can learn more by going to GreenwichHistory.org and look under the events section of the menu at the top of the page. You are listening to the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. I have mentioned on previous show episodes that Greenwich, Connecticut was a very desirable place for people to come and to get married, especially if they were coming from New York. Now, the wedding that I'm going to share with you today, um, it was from um, April 20th, 1923. This is the Dewing and Louder Families. Um, the brilliant uh, event uh, in Greenwich Society, and of course that would be High Society, after all it was the Gilded Age, um, was held at, um, at Christ Episcopal Church, known today as Christ Church Greenwich, over on um, East Putnam Avenue. Um, the most brilliant society wedding of the season, for which some 1,400 invitations have been issued to prominent people all over the country, took place at Christ Episcopal Church on Monday afternoon at 4 o'clock, when... Miss Catherine Varick Lauder, daughter of Mrs. George Lauder Jr., became the bride of Edwin Storrs Dewing, son of Mrs. L.H. Dewing of Hartford. 
The bride was given in marriage by her uncle, John T. Rowland. She was gowned in white satin with silver lace train and wore a tulle veil caught up with orange blossoms. Her bridal bouquet was orange blossoms and white orchids. Mrs. Miss Josephine Lauder, sister of the bride, was maid of honor, was attired in a gown of pale apricot color. The bridesmaids were Miss Margaret McCargo of Pittsfield, or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Miss Eleanor Manor, and Miss Winifred Manor of New York, Miss Nancy Carnegie of Boston and Fernandia, Florida, Miss Anita Dewings, sister of the bridegroom, and Miss Catherine Pomeroy of Greenwich. Their gowns were of a deeper shade of apricot. The maid and honor and bridesmaids carried large bouquets of sweet peas, buttercups, daisies, and other spring flowers. The flower girls were Margaret Dewing, niece of the bridegroom, and Greenway, daughter of Dr. and Mrs. J.C. Greenway of Greenwich, cousin of the bride, and Valley and Catherine Ewing, daughters of Mr. and Mrs. Frederick C. Ewing of Greenwich. They, were, they wore pale blue breast, uh, dresses and carried baskets of small roses. Harold Dewing, brother of the bridegroom, was best man. The ushers were Rudolph Garfield and Clayton Bailey of Hartford, Samuel F. Pryor, Jr. of Greenwich, Edward Egan of Oxford, England, Leonard Dewing, brother of the bridegroom, Kirby Green of New York, and Corson Ellis of Hartford. Ray H. Harrington, organist of the church, played the wedding marches and other selections before the, cer- the ceremonies. Orchestra of New Haven furnished the music and a wedding supper was served. Miss Lauder is a graduate of the Shipley School, Bryn Mawr. Mr. Dewing is a graduate of Yale Sheffield School, class of 1921. He served with the U.S. Navy during the World War. Well, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we pause to celebrate the ongoing 125th anniversary celebrations and observances of the Greenwich Police Department. Um, And um, (laughs) we talk about crime and um, other unfortunate things of that sort that uh, that happened. Uh, This particular uh, crime story came, uh, was literally 100 years ago, and that was March 30th, 1923. And the headline on this is Poor Marksmanship. Frank Bria fired at a dog and hit a house. Oh, dear. That it is a dangerous practice to fire off a revolver at random was shown last Saturday night when a bullet from a revolver in the hands of Frank Brea of Herald Avenue went through the side of Frank Bologna's house nearly nearby and just missed Miss Josephine Bologna, who was standing near a sink at the kitchen. Hmm. The bullet was later picked up on the floor. It was about 11.30 Saturday evening when Bria heard some chickens cackling outside, and upon going into the yard, he saw a black dog, which was evidently chasing the chickens. He returned to the house, took a thirty-two caliber revolver from his overcoat, and fired at the dog. The bullet went wild, missing the dog, and went through the house. Miss Bologna testified that she heard the shot, and then the bullet whizzed by her. Captain Patrick Flanagan later found the revolver in Bria's overcoat, from which one bullet bullet had been discharged. The bullets in the gun corresponded to the one found in the kitchen. 
At first, Bria told the captain that he had heard a shot fired from a hill near the house, but later admitted using the revolver himself. Bria was arrested on a charge of breach of the peace, and after hearing the evidence in the case Monday morning, Judge Maid ordered that Bria be discharged, but warned him to desist from firing off revolvers at random in the future. There have been numerous complaints received by the police about similar wild sets of shootings in the neighborhood. So, um, well, <laughs> oh dear, that's not very, very good. We have another crime story, and this one uh, actually uh, dates from 1908. This was a very, very interesting um, piece that appeared in the um, in the Greenwich News in February of um, of that year, and. Um, and it goes as follows. And first of all, I want to correct myself. Yeah, oh, it is. It's February 28th, 1908. This is rather interesting. It, the, uh, the headline is, Gang of Burglars Enter 12 Places in Town. That must be a record. But um, the story goes as follows. That a clever and desperate gang of burglars is working that portion of the town outside the police protection was made evident last week when 12 different breaks were made in various parts of the town, all clearly the work of the same party. The 12 houses entered were those of, let's see, the scan isn't good, but Fritz W. Hogan's house of Rock Ridge, Emil Boas of Stanwich, Joseph Brush of North Street, two of H.E. Jones's house, two of Mr. H.H. H. Tyson's houses, Mr. Rand or Hans and Miss and W.H. Redmond's at Riverside, the Sound Beach Station, the Riverside Station, and the Post Office. All of these places were closed for the winter, and all of them were broken into in the same manner. That is, windows on the lower floors were pried open with a jimmy. Another conclusive proof that three of the breaks were made by the same burglars was that the Boas residents were found a Macintosh taken from the Hoagans house and the patch, patchwork quilt, more than 150 years old, an heirloom of the Brush family taken from the Brush house. Apparently all of the breaks were made on Wednesday night. The one in the Hogan house place was discovered on Thursday morning by Carl Mead when he went to make up the yes make up the the fires there everything in the house had been thrown about as if it had been hurriedly ransacked several articles of clothing were found to be missing but as nearly as could be learned little else had been taken an attempt had been made with a hacksaw to saw open the safe in the cellar where the family keep their plates, and other valuables. From the brush house, various articles of clothing were taken, but the burglars were apparently in so great a hurry that they missed much of the valuables. From the Jones house, several hundreds of dollars worth um, were taken. About a thousand dollars worth was taken from the Boas residence. None of the plates was uh, accessible, but in their zest for silver, the burglars had taken the silver tops of the salt <laughs> of the salt cellars. Hmm. Several valuable cameras were stolen. In one of the Tyson houses, an oil stove had been taken downstairs, and one of the beds slept in. Apparently, the burglars had slept there uh, for two or three nights. Oh my! 
For most of the houses, nothing of great value had been taken. In one of Mr. Jones's houses, all that was taken was a cheap manicure set and two revolvers. Well, that's interesting. In another place, all the all that the robbers had uh, appropriated was a pair of white flannel trousers. In the Sound Beach station, a nickel-in-the-slot machine was broken into, and in the Riverside station, the trunk in which the express company keeps packages was smashed open and some dress goods taken. An attempt to get into the Riverside station created great excitement in that quiet village. At half-past twelve on Monday night, the burglar alarm which Postmaster Loudon has connected with his house went off. Mr. Loudon tried, fired of uh, his pistol, and William H. Wilmot, Howard Ferris, Edward Brinley, and Mr. Barnes' neighbors heard, hurried to the scene scantily clad. <laughs> Armed, they waited behind trees to to wing the, uh, uh, the, the burglars when they came out of the post office. I'm sorry, but I'm trying to visualize this, and it must have been very strange to look at. But the burglars didn't come, and the watchers um, after waiting until they were nearly frozen home, or frozen, went home. <laughs> the cause of missions is the cause of God, quote-unquote, according to the weekly periodical called the Religious Intelligencer in July 1834. Quote, and it behooves us to go forward confidently in his protection and faithful to his interest, unquote. Now, one young man from Greenwich, Connecticut, by the name of Dr. Marcus Palmer, answered this call and became the town's first missionary. Now, Palmer was born in Greenwich on April 24, 1795. At the age of 25, he departed New York City on April 20, 1820. He was sent by the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions to teach and attend to the medical needs of the Osage and Cherokee people. Ten years later, in 1830, he was ordained a congregational minister while stationed with the Arkansas Cherokees. On April 24, 1824, Palmer married Clarissa Johnson. She's a native of Colchester. After her death on September 8, 1835, in Granville, Ohio, Palmer married again, this time to Clarissa's younger sister, Jerusha, on February 7, 1836. She had joined them previously as, um, as an assistant. Now, a number of letters penned by Palmer were published in uh, a publication called the Missionary Herald. It was a monthly news magazine published by the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. I found the text of these letters and copies of the Missionary Herald um, in the Hawaiian Mission Houses Museum and Archives uh, over in Honolulu, Hawaii, of all places, but they do have an incredibly um, rich archive of materials uh, dealing with uh, the 19th century missionary movement that included Hawaii and other localities um, around the world. Anyway, in 1829, um, Dr. Palmer reflected on his teaching duties at Mulberry Creek, Georgia, among the Cherokees, and I wanted to quote this for you. Quote, we found the people as ready to receive instruction as we expect, he wrote. At first, the school consisted of about 15 scholars, all of whom belonged to the immediate neighborhood. Now, his letter also alluded to the expulsion of the Cherokees, and that goes as follows. 
Quote, the news came of the treaty at Washington, by which the country was exchanged for one further to the West. Now our hopes were dashed. The people are now beginning to make preparation for removal, and it is likely a great portion of them will go this early fall. Hmm. In the West, Palmer and his wife helped organize a Cherokee temperance society and a newspaper. Missionaries were actively engaged in creating written languages where none existed before. Instruction was carried out in both English and Cherokee languages. Revivals of religion followed as they did the creation by Mrs. Palmer of a woman's society for promoting temperance and the establishment of a library. In 1837, all was going well despite the difficulties involved in the mass migration, or expulsion really, as you would say, and that included the deaths of many. The Missionary Herald reported the printing of Cherokee language books. Palmer and his second wife were released from the mission in 1840, and they returned to the area and went on to live in White Plains, New York. By the way, I have this and other articles that I have um, written um, on a uh, website called writingsofjeffreybinghammead.blogspot.com. And you could go there and read this article and others that I have penned uh, about various aspects of Greenwich, Connecticut's history and, and even a few other, um, other topics as well. Also, I have another story, and let me see if I can find that. But it's so wonderful that we have everything online. It makes it so much easier. This is about a unique decree, a divorce decree, I stand corrected, in 19th century Greenwich. Um, this was something that um, was published by the Greenwich Time um, in 1994. This was um, a year just before I, I had gone over to, uh, to Hawaii. And this, the article goes as follows. Many people living in these latter years of the 20th century presuppose that divorces did not occur in earlier times. Marriages back then far more than often, not uh, well, far more uh, often than uh, than not, grew and persisted longer than they do today. And boy, isn't that true! But there were those rare episodes when matrimonial bliss went sour under arduous circumstances. These include abandonment, adultery, and failure to provide. A divorce settlement unparalleled and recorded in local history is registered in the Greenwich Land Records. It's dated from 1867. It involved a couple named John H. Monroe and Emma Green. They had married the previous year. The recorded court judgment touches on an interesting account of a marriage that should never have happened in the first place. As the degree states, quote, Immediately before said marriage took place, said Emma made oath before a justice of the peace that she was pregnant with the child by the petitioner, that would be Mr. Monroe, and caused him to be arrested, and that to be then and there held in confinement, unquote. Monroe denied he was the father. He also requested time to hire a lawyer to defend himself, which was refused. Faced with jail and imprisonment, quote, he married said Emma. But there is an interesting twist in, the sad, in this uh, saga, and um, the, rec uh, the record records that, quote, since said marriage, he has learned that said Emma, before said marriage, repeatedly had this is an interesting, um, uh, well, you, you be the judge and you can read it. Um, it says, 
Um, Emma before said marriage repeatedly had carnal connection with other men and that, that she was not a fit and proper person for him to marry, showing further that said Emma concealed all such misconduct from him before said marriage and he was not uh, since said marriage cohabitated with her for the same reason aforesaid, unquote. Monroe's problems were exacerbated by several suits brought against him by Emma's father, quote, for her board and clothes, and has tried in every way to annoy and injure the petitioner, and has had him arrested on a false criminal charge, unquote. The petition for a divorce was filed on November 26, 1866. Monroe appeared at the hearing, and Emma was represented by Ferris Child Esquire. The court found the allegations made by Monroe to be true, and he was granted a divorce discharging him, quote, from all duties and covenants, which he is under by reason of the marriage aforesaid, and said John H. Monroe is declared to be single and unmarried, unquote. Um, and again, I have this on my uh, website for uh, my writings, and it is the, uh, it is, quote, ri the writings, well, excuse me, writings of Jeffrey Bingham Mead.blogspot.com. You can go there, you can do a word search to find this and other topics that I have written about over the years. I hope you enjoy it. News of the opening of the town's first modern high school. Uh, was conveyed to the public on November 30th, 1906 in the Greenwich News. Um, and that building still exists today. It was also known as the Town Hall Annex. It is used today for housing uh, with uh, Greenwich Communities, the former um, housing authority of the town of Greenwich. Um, and um, it, it's a very, very article, uh, interesting article, I should say, and I'd like to share this uh, with you, of course. Um, the headline is an imposing edifice to be opened next uh, week after next. And it goes as follows. A few weeks more and Greenwich will be able to boast, boast of having one of the finest high school buildings in this part of the state. Inside of a month, the new $100,000 building that has been in the course of construction for the past year will be ready for occupancy. It will comfortably accommodate 500 students, as it is, and has four unfinished rooms that, in case of necessity, can be finished off into classrooms. It is equipped with all of the latest appliances and may be well, well may be called a model schoolhouse. It, above all, suggests strength and solidarity. Obviously, it was built for service and is without those architectural frills with which often make public buildings look foolish, like overly dressed children arrayed by doting mothers for the purpose of arousing envy in the breasts of other women, of other mothers. Oh my! the <laughs> The dimensions of the structure are sixty one by one hundred and twenty seven feet, and it is three stories high. In the basement are located the dressing rooms where uh, iron lockers are provided for the students' clothing, two manual training rooms, one for the boys and one for the girls, the most modern toilet rooms, and the immense heating and ventilating plant. On the first floor, in the rear corners, in the four corners of the building, are four recitations rooms fitted with the latest style desks and chairs and accommodating 35 students each. 
The center of the building near the front entrance is occupied by the principal's room and two reception rooms. In the rear of the building is a large lecture room, admirably furnished for the purpose. On the second floor are four recitation rooms in the four corners similar to those on the floor below. The front of the building is taken up by a large assembly hall with a stage and, uh, let's see, and, and seating 258 people. In the rear of the building is a mammoth recitation room with 136 seats. On the third floor are three large laboratories for experimental physics and chemistry, two lecture rooms, and four rooms yet, as yet finished. It seems as if the building contained every device that could be required in an up-to-date schoolhouse. On every floor are patent sanitary drinking fountains, which do much to decrease the possibility of the communication of contagious diseases. No cups are used, the children drinking from the spouting fountain. In the halls are warming warmers, devices where the students who have become chilled on their way to school can warm up again in a quote-unquote jiffy. <laughs> the building is heated by steam heat. One of the most remarkable features of the structure is its ventilating system. In the basement is a huge fan which forces air at the rate of 30 cubic feet per minute for every one of the 500 pupils the school is supposed to hold. The impure air is carried through the, the room. In winter, the air is warmed and in summer is cooled. And that is a description of the what was then the soon-to-be-opened um, new modern high school, which is um, over um, diagonally across, uh, or no, diagonally next to, uh, the um, uh, the uh, the firehouse and the uh, police headquarters, and this was published on November November thirtieth, nineteen o six. Well, my friends, thank you so much for tuning in to the Tuesday twenty eighth of March, twenty twenty three episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons Show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, a place long known as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut today stands proudly as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. We hope that you do, too. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. I love to hear from people. You can contact me anytime at Greenwich and Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to Greenwich and Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Our next show is scheduled scheduled for Tuesday, the 4th of April, 2023. I'm grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating Greenwich, Connecticut's history. I look forward to being with you next week. Take good care now. Bye-bye.